0: Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top level COOs share their insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold.
1: As Acorns Chief Operating Officer, Manning Field oversees the business with direct accountability for growth, retention, experimentation, customer service, analytics, project management, and Acorns regulated entities. Prior to Acorns, Manning launched market-leading products and programs at JPMorgan Chase like Chase Sapphire, Chase Freedom, Chase Ultimate Rewards, and was named an ad age 40 under 40. He also spent four years in Beijing, China as the CMO of JPMorgan Chase's consumer team and while there founded a local credit card business. During his 18-year tenure at Chase, Manning oversaw many departments including branding, advertising, product development, marketing, corporate development, innovation, B2B corporate sales strategy, and lastly as the Managing Director of Loyalty Innovation. He and his wife have three future Acorns investors, and Manning, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The uh, the timing of this is really interesting. So I knew that we were getting our um, interview set up and then somehow it kind of like, I guess my hard drive was full and I kind of missed or forgot that. And the other day I heard Acorns being talked about on, I think maybe the Joe Rogan podcast. And, oh, really? um, so I just, all of a sudden I'm like, shit, you know, what? I want to think, take a look at that and see if I can sign up for my two kids cause I want to get them starting to invest. And so I probably opened an account like four days ago Yeah. and, uh, then I was, I had to make a mental note to find out how to talk to my accountant to find out which accounts I should be getting set up. But that's pretty weird timing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, well,
0: uh, you know serendipity is a, is a wonderful thing, so yeah.
1: so um, so tell us a little bit about acorns just so that people actually know because I, I know some people will will clearly know of the brand, and then others it might be completely new to them. so give us some background on that, and then we'll go backwards into um, you know the startup and, and when you got involved
0: sure, yeah, so so acorns is a fintech app that really is designed to kind of be a financial wellness system and so so what that means is, Really, it's designed to help everyday Americans save and invest every day. And, and we use technology, we use design to, and, and, and really kind of rooted in a foundation of behavioral economics to try to help people um, make good financial decisions um, and, and really align the act of putting money away and saving money um, with a, an everyday behavior. And that everyday behavior, which is kind of our core feature of our account, is every time you shop, you take we, you actually round up to the next dollar, and that money gets put into a, a diversified portfolio um, that's that's really designed for you based on your kind of time horizon and risk profile and, and so forth. And so, so we really take the 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 utility and the ease of use of an app, um, bring kind of more traditional financial services product knowledge and experience and infrastructure, um, and make that experience as simple as possible. And, and, and the product was really designed to make the first step of saving money and building confidence financially, um, the smallest step possible as, as opposed to typically in the financial services industry, that, that first step is actually usually quite large. Um,
1: yeah. And, and you're kind of following a lot of the basic principles of investing too, which is just get started and, and keep kind of keep putting money in and let the compounding start. Right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, our, you know, our, our kind of investment philosophy, is really rooted in the power um, of modern portfolio theory and passive investing. So actually, our portfolios were designed by Dr. Harry Markowitz, who actually invented Mark, the Nobel Prize winner and, and invented modern portfolio theory. And so, you know, we use the portfolios that we built for you. We actually have one of five from, from conservative to aggressive, and those portfolios are really constructed using the principles of modern portfolio theory and using you know, kind of high liquidity, low cost uh, ETFs across BlackRock and Vanguard. Uh, we construct these portfolios for our customers based on um, what their needs are. Cool.
1: All right. So, walk us into, I guess, kind of how you got involved in the company, and then we'll we'll kind of grow um, through the, through kind of your tenure and through the company itself. So, when did you get involved? So,
0: I, I joined the company as an as a as an employee in um, the summer of 2016. So, it's almost been three years since I've since I've been here company was founded before then, was um, founded in 2012 and actually launched in 2014. And so I, I was actually quite aware of the company before I came to Acorns to join the team. Um, in my role, when I was running kind of um, the loyalty program at, at Chase, you know, we had had conversations with with a number of fintech companies, but, but Acorns was actually quite interesting. We were looking at them potentially um, as uh, as an option for people to redeem their points into an Acorns account. Um, So Mm -hmm. using uh, loyalty currency to potentially help accelerate a funded investment account. And so uh, the conversation ended up not really, you know, kind of transpiring in in a transaction, but um, got to know the brand, got to know the founder. And then at the same time, um, a business partner of mine who I've been collaborating with, since about 2005, Noah Kerner, who's currently the CEO of Acorn started, he was starting to get involved in the company and he ultimately became the CEO and recruited me to come join him because we had worked together on a variety of projects throughout um, our professional careers. And so we knew each other and we shared a lot of the same values around product, around design, around simplification, um, and around culture as well. And so um, knowing that really helped, um, Helped me feel very, very confident in um, what Acorns was trying to do, and, and and making you know a big move from a big institution to uh, a startup.
1: Yeah, that was my that's my question. I'm sitting like chomping at the bit to ask us and to understand. So, how many employees were at Acorns when you joined?
0: I think it was just a little bit over sixty when I joined. Um, like six zero. Yeah,
1: a little bit over sixty. Okay. Um, and then now we're we're like we're, we're pretty much right at three hundred right now. Okay, and it's interesting. Like, okay, so so to go from Chase, I mean, that's a huge, huge, huge organization. I mean, even some of the small business units at Chase are bigger than than um, Acorns would be in in its entirety. What was that like? Bigger than the town
0: that Acorns is in.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's true. Right. Where are you based? Uh, We're based in uh, in Irvine, California. Here in Orange County. Okay. Um, Okay. So you're you're in a cool area then. Um, All right. So you've got. 60 employees when you join you're leaving chase and coming in and were you coming from china back to um to the us for that as well or had you left china and come back to the us already yeah and no i
0: came back um from china in 2012. so i've been back in this almost four
1: years um back at the bank so all right so what was it like going from a huge corporate environment in banking into a small fintech startup um and, and kind of what, what lessons did you learn? What lessons could you give to others? Cause there's a huge, I think some huge insights there.
0: Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, it, it's, it's funny when you, you know, cause my, pretty much my entire experience was in, in a large organization. So I didn't have a small company, um, track record, um, that I could lean upon personally. And so, so you sit there at a big company and you have all of these, um, assumptions that you make of what it would like to be work to, to be working at a startup, um, you know, from. Uh, you know, from moving fast to, to never having to wear a suit again to uh, uh, to uh, you know to, to working with a lot, a, lot, a lot of young people, a lot of ambitious people. Um, so I would say most of the assumptions I had about working at a startup were actually true. Um, some of them are kind of stereotypes, but uh, but 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 it was really um, the, the thing that I didn't have fully have an appreciation for when I came into the startup was actually the the importance of the infrastructure and the process and the controls that a large institution has whether it be a bank or whether it be kind of a more traditional corporate function um, you know a lot of those processes even though inside those organizations in, as an employee you might feel constrained by those um, they might be barriers they might be bureaucracy and then some of that is true but but when you come to an environment that's like young and growing and and, and and not had the benefit of a lot of that structure, um, you learn pretty early on actually how important some of that is. Now, you have to implement it and design it in a way that is right for where that company is at that point in time um, and something that is culturally compliant and something that builds culture as opposed to, you know, gives the impression of slowing things down. But but I, I just had a tremendous appreciation you know kind of inside a big company you kind of rail against the machine right Um, right you go to a startup you're like oh wait a second i have to build the machine Um, (laughs) and so so that was uh i have to admit i didn't really have a full appreciation for that and i would say early on in my tenure Mm. you know it was probably the one most disorienting thing Mm. um, because doing like product development in a large organization you end up like trying to figure out how to navigate the rules and the system and in some cases break, break some of them. And, and then a startup, you know, given what my role was and, and is and what the team needed for me um, was they needed structure and they needed rules and they needed process and they needed these things. And so um, uh, versus I probably walked in thinking, Oh, we're going to all be creative together. We're going to make new great products. And we're doing, we're doing all those things anyway, but like company, the, the company needed less of that me to drive that, because we've got lots of creative uh, people here. The company needed more of the structure and the process.
1: Interesting. So, yeah. What What do you think are the the kind of core behavioral traits of a great corporate person that would work well in an entrepreneurial environment? So, I often, I've actually even coached people to say, you know, be very careful when you bring somebody in from the big corporate that it, they can be the culturally not necessarily the right fit, even though the skill set could be amazing. So, what what are the rights? Kind of behavioral traits or core things to look for that you could maybe give us that would help the fit.
0: Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, and I think mid career is the hardest move to go from corporate into a startup. Mm-hmm. Those I've seen um, struggle with this that transition. Really, in some cases, it's you've got to be able to go from like ground level to fifty thousand feet and then back again. And do that kind of like um, strategic and tactical context switching, you need to be able to do that pretty quick. Okay. Because, because if you only can operate at 50,000 feet, um, and a lot of senior people only operate at that level because that's what the organization has required of them at that point in time, that's how they got to where they are. Sure. Um, if you only operate at that level, um, that's gonna you're going to have a really hard time because because the maturity of the organization doesn't have those kind of layers and that you know and that talent at every level of the organization, so that you could just operate at that level. So you have to be able to do that. And, and I think related to that, that's super important. Is um, you've got to be willing to get your fingernails dirty. You absolutely have to. You know, because we're working with a company of sixty people though you may have a job title or a scope of, of job that is clearly articulated, you end up wearing like 17, 18 different hats. Right. Um, and so you have to be pretty nimble and adept and, um, and people that have struggled with that. Um, I think struggle in, in startups is is my observation. I think the other thing too, because, because, you know, big corporations have a tendency to have lots of kind of meeting driven culture and call it politics, whatever that might be. Um, Influence management, those, those things end up in a smaller organization not being very effective. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, learning how to navigate an organization is not that valuable uh, in a small company, you know, learning how, how to inspire people, lead people, share experience, um, sit along somebody and help them solve a problem. So um, you know, that becomes way more important than how to navigate an org chart. Um,
1: that's really interesting. I never actually thought about that, but you're right. There really is something that you, what did you call it? Not politics. You called it something else. Like influence management? Influence management. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because it is actually, that is something that is pretty powerful and, and necessary when you get to that stage. I've always played in the, in the world of probably the, you know, 50 to 500 employees. And then when all of a sudden you get into these cross-departmental, you know, matrix decision-making, I break down. I don't know how to play in that big corporate world. And um, I had a mentor that was being groomed as the second in command at Starbucks and he was trying to work with me on stuff. And I was just like, dude, it's like teaching me Latin. I like, I don't get it. Um, But it's certainly, it's an amazing skill set to have too. Okay, yeah. so what did you what did you see in Acorns that made you make the switch? Then, I guess was it um, was it Noah that, that kind of sold you on it? And if he did, what was he selling you?
0: Um, he didn't have to sell me on the idea, the brand, or the company. Um, you know, knowing him and knowing how he thinks. You know, to for me to take the risk, move. You know, I moved from the East Coast here. I've got three kids. So for me to take that risk. Um, you know, knowing the CEO and knowing how the CEO thinks. Is worth a lot, yeah. um, but it's not. You know, it's that's not, not the main reason why why I joined. It just helped make the transition a lot easier and the decision a lot easier. I mean, for me, first and foremost, it was the brand and the mission of the company. Mm. I, I worked in I've worked in financial services my entire career, and I feel like that there's an opportunity to be better. Um, you know, most of the P and Ls in financial services kind of only work when, like, the customer's not paying attention or when the customer's making mistakes. And I don't think that builds really kind of trust in institutions. I don't think that builds um, good customer behavior. And I think when we look at our society today, even though, you know, the is quite strong, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that are being left behind. And I feel like there's a, an opportunity um, from a product and a brand standpoint to actually come in. And maybe tackle it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I was—I I wanted to work. I kind of had—you know—I wanted to work in fintech because that's my experience. I wanted to work for a company that really had a strong brand foundation and really th- approached everything from product to hiring to everything, every decision that they make, the business itself, from a brand point of view, as opposed to a financial point of view, or opposed from purely a technical kind of point of view. And, and, and so Acorns obviously is that. Um, and I also wanted to, to you know, intellectually have the challenge of, can you actually make a financial services piano work when the customer is winning? Um, and so that felt like to me like a, a really strong intellectual challenge. So the combination of believing in the leader, believing in the brand and having the opportunity to address something that I think is a, is a real problem uh, in the industry, uh, those three things together is really what 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 kind of made the, helped me make the decision.
1: so I've, I've probably got an overly simplistic view of, of the business because I thought uh, my thought was that the way that the portfolios and things were set up that it largely was going to become a sales and marketing organization versus a product almost like a WhatsApp where they sold for over a billion dollars and they only had 55 employees at the time. Yeah. What are the 300 employees working on and and when do you need to stop adding people and when do you start leveraging? I guess, when does just happen on its own?
0: Yeah, no, uh, so, uh, you know, if you think about the 300 people, it, it, and simplistically, it's a third customer service, so we do all of our own customer service in-house. I am looking up uh, through my window here in my office, and my team is, is right there, helping customers, you know, chat, email, and the phone. Um, so a third customer service, a third engineering, and kind of technical stuff to continue to advance the product. Um, and then, And then the rest of the company is a mixture of, you know, we have small marketing team. We have uh, uh, we do all of our design in house. We actually have a large design team, um, HR, finance, um, and then and then just the operational side. The operational side outside of customer service is actually relatively thin. When you think about uh, a, a company with the number of customers that we have, which is now over five million, um, and and we trade, you know, every day that the market's open, you know, because of the way our technology works, you know. Um, you know, we have a very, very small operational function because, because we don't do, you know, we don't have salespeople. We're not active. we trying to drive active trading. Right. It's, it's really about within our broker dealer and within our um, RIA. It's really about meeting our fiduciary responsibility from an RIA's perspective and on a broker dealer perspective, making sure that we execute it with the highest quality.
1: Um, Interesting. All right. One more question on the transition that I'm really kind of curious about. And and I'm curious because um, companies are often trying to, when they're in that growth phase, recruit and attract seasoned senior talent. You know, when they're at the 50 employee and they're ready to scale, they can't have the jack of all trades, master of none being promoted from within. They need to bring in the people like you to help scale. And it's the question is always like, how do I attract them? And one of the questions we always encounter is how do we, how do we get the spouse to buy in that we're not crazy leaving the corporate world and going to this startup. How did you, how did your wife, how did they, or how did you, or, you know, or was that part of the equation?
0: Um, I mean, I can only obviously speak to my own personal situation. And so I would say it was less about convincing my spouse. This was the right move for me. Um, you know, my wife Amy had been actually pushing me to do something different for about five years before I actually left the bank. So, so my risk appetite on a change was actually uh, lower than hers, and 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 I think the main reason why, outside of her just being supportive and, and great, but she just she she felt like I could do more, and a change of scenery and a change of environment would uh, w- would be
1: better for me personally, um, which she was right. Mm. <laughs> so, Got it. All right. So coming in then from Chase, what did you bring over that, um, that helped shape, what kind of things did you bring over that, um, that you think were the good tools or good systems that helped you shape acorns then?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you know, that organization, you know, is one of the best led companies in the world. I mean, Jamie diamond, it's clear clear that he's an inspirational leader and, and, and probably the best operator out there. Um, I think the data is pretty clear on that. And so so just by being in an organization led by him, like everybody in that company is trained to be an operator, trained to be metrics oriented, trained to, trained to, to, to really kind of think about um, execution and operating it in a way that, um, to be honest, like I didn't have a full appreciation for until I left an organization that had that rooting. Um, and so I, I honestly brought a lot of that um, you know, the, they didn't need me on the creativity side. They didn't need me to come up with the next great product idea. Acorns is pretty damn good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed me to help, kind of, how do we scale? How do we, how do we make sure? Because you know, the vast majority of people here don't actually have a ton of financial services experience outside of what they've done at Acorns. So, how can I share kind of lessons learned by being inside one of the global leaders in the space for a long time to, to make sure that they avoid problems? Um, so that's definitely one of them. And the other one, too, because I've designed in my career, I had the, had the opportunity to work on a lot of great card products. You know, Acorns is in the process of starting to do some cards. So we've got a, a, our spend account, which, which launched um, last year, and so brought a lot of that experience about how to build a card product to Acorns as well.
1: Very cool now did you start um what do you think were the first couple of big initiatives that you brought into the company that when you walked in the door, I think typically we see things that we want to change or work on right away. What were the first couple that you had your eye on? Oh you know the most of them were kind of uh,
0: uh behind the scenes types of things you know, because the the team again from the product standpoint, the team was in a good place like 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 they didn't hire Manning to go change that um uh, and so it's it's interesting. I actually just shared it with the whole leadership team. So my at the end of my first week, I wrote down a list of things that I want to implement and change. Mm. Um, I think there were about 31, 32 things on that list. And I'm about halfway through the list. Um, and, and it's not because I've been been uh, not focused on trying to drive change, but but you have to think about, especially in a smaller organization, the pace, the sequence, and how you drive change.
1: Yep.
0: If you change too fast, it actually is not gonna be helpful at all. Um, and some of the things that I wanted to build like, are more long-term, uh, long-term things that are really, um, give, if, you, if I had the opportunity to build it, that means like we're in a really good place from a scale standpoint, because we've gotten big enough and kind of complex enough as a business that we need to have this. Um, and frankly, at that point in time, we didn't need that level of kind of rigor. And so, I, so just a few examples. Um, you know, just simple prioritization process about how we think about resources, how we force, you know, kind of harder decisions around trade-offs. You know, a lot of times in younger companies just don't do that much with that. Um, it's just a little bit more kind of like everyone, let a thousand flowers bloom, you have to introduce a little bit more structure around how you choose to spend your time, how you choose to spend your investors money to build the product and meet the customer needs. And so, so some, some, some some simple steps there. Um, that, and we're constantly tweaking this. Um, but that was definitely one of them.
1: You know, I was asked yesterday by somebody that they said, how do I hold my employees accountable? And I said, you don't, you hire accountable people. And I kind of get the feeling like you would line up with that, that seems like you, you hire or or have a team of great people. How do you lead your team? How do you grow your team? How do you, um, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Not necessarily philosophies around it, but more, what are the practical things that you're doing to grow your direct reports or to grow their direct reports?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I'm going to try to avoid a ton of cliches here, but um, it's really about giving them enough space to make some mistakes, to kind of, to kind of discover some things on their own and and be there as kind of guardrails as opposed to like strict command and control. Mm. Um, when you have a, a response, a set of responsibilities as broad as I had, especially when I first started, um, you don't have the luxury of micromanaging everything, even if that is what they need from you. And frankly, that's actually not what they need from you. It's, it just, that, that, that in and of itself drives a ton of bad behavior because then you're not stretching people. Um, so, you know, I prefer to kind of set high-level objectives and goals, let the team come back with a plan. I give feedback, some coaching, um, and, and, and try to really think about building confidence along the way, um, you know, because I, I actually... I'm not a huge list person, but I have two lists that are really important. I have a list of like the 30 plus things that I want to change, because I think they're needed to make the company achieve um, its, its ambition. The other list I have is jobs to fire myself from. Um, and, and I, you know, there's a few more jobs that I still, that are on my list that I want to fire myself from, but but I feel like if I've effectively fired myself from all of the jobs that I've had, then I've been successful. Because, you know you know, I think over time, you have a responsibility to remove the organizational dependency on you as a leader. Um.
1: Yeah, I don't want to gloss over that. That's a huge growth area that I don't think a lot of people really think about. I'm actually working with my second in command on that right now and looking at everything on her list, everything on her plate, and trying to get stuff off that we either don't need to do or we can delegate or outsource or optimize or automate. How do you start to def- or look at what is on your plate that you can get off and how do you decide what to get off your plate and what to keep
0: yeah, I mean, I'm a, uh, you know, one of the things that we do here at um, at Acorns is we use Gallup strengths. I'm not sure if you're familiar yeah. with it. Yes, we use Gallup strengths. We, we, we do it with the whole company. We share the grid with everybody. And it's really helped us um, work cross functionally better. Um, and so one of my top strengths is actually deliberative. Um, so I almost always have to have a plan. Um, and so when I think about, jobs to fire myself from, succession planning, delegation, like I've got a pretty rigorous like sequence in which I'm trying to follow. Um, and that's aligned with both what I think the business needs and then also where, where talent is um, and, and where the kind of logical handoffs are. Um, and so, so I, I, that really for me is, is critically important. And I, and, I, and I try to time box this as well. Not, it's never perfect, but I try to time box it because um, I think, at least in my experience with my own, myself, if I don't do that, I probably won't
1: actually move at the pace that I need to move. Got it, all right. Um, what about your growth? How are you continuing to grow as a leader? Um, well, I, I think you know, changing
0: from a big kind of company to a small company, is 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 so vastly different? Not only in some of the things that I've already mentioned, but as a leader, right? Much of your time in a big company is like thinking through how do I get the the people above me in the organization to support what it is that we're trying to do, and 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 you know, can implement the things that we want to do. Um, you know, in a in a small company, like uh, I, I just have to have a conversation with Noah, and in some cases, a conversation with our board. But but there's not a lot of like kind of convincing others around you that, that this is the right thing to do. Mm. Um, And and so, but that, that comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. (laughs) So uh, you want to make sure that when you give direction or that you make a decision, that it's well-communicated, well-deliberated, and that you've got buy-in from the team as opposed to leadership. Um, And so that to me is, it, it was very different. Um, and so I've, you know, I, and I'm, I've got a lot more learning still to do here on, on kind of that component of decision-making. Um, so that's definitely an area that I've grown. And then, and then just learning the whole process, not that I drive this uh, because Noah drives this, but the whole process around fundraising, working with investors, which is very different than in a public public company. Mm. Um, you know, that whole process of, of, kind of, I'll call it pitching, not that Acorn is in a position to spend a lot of time pitching, but storytelling around the company and the brand, you know, you spend a lot more time doing that. You also spend a lot more time recruiting. Um, Mm. So just trying to, especially when you think about kind of some of those more senior hires that will help scale you, you spend a lot more time kind of recruiting and trying to find the right people that are gonna join the company, take the risk that joining the startup it you know, requires, um, so you spend a lot more time doing that, and so i've learned a you know i've learned a lot from that process as well
1: yeah you'd have to i'm curious people are are really really um, emotional about money and about their money and and you know I think about the more sophisticated investors or mature investors and how they're you know handle things like i guess a couple of days ago where you know the donald talked about something in china and the market's corrected by you know they were down 3% and people are freaking out um how does your customer service team handle these newer investors or younger investors and they're not even dealing with that much money but you know their small portfolio all of a sudden corrects so they're worried about the market downturn how do you calm them yeah. how do you how do you guys walk them through all that and
0: Uh, No, it's a great question, and and it actually gets back to the core of what Acorns has stood for from from the day we started to to what we do now. We've always viewed education as a critical component of the product. Mm -hmm. It's not some extraneous marketing function, um, which I think is traditionally how financial services treats this kind of topic of financial literacy. Um, But we've embedded it in the product, and so we actually have a product line called Grow, um we have a whole content team um that that kind of develops this this information not just about investing but about just broader financial kind of um topics around paying down student debt or whatever whatever kind of the the customer need is and we so we produce a a lot of original content around this that's well designed it's embedded in our app we have also a website and actually um, we just as part of our last fund raising round Um, NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures actually invested, led that round and invested in our company. And so we have, we have a very deep content literacy partnership with uh, CNBC. Um, And so if you watch CNBC, you will see a lot of educational content that's co-branded CNBC and Acorns. Um, And we really, I think we, we actually just just looked at the data like 134 million media impressions on CNBC alone in the month wow. of April, um, and April was Financial Literacy Month, so it was, it was really good timing. But, um, but 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 the question around building confidence is like core to everything that we think about in the product itself. Now, so when you look at the markets themselves, even though you know there have been a couple of you know bumpy days recently, and last in the fourth quarter was not great. You know, for the most part, Acorns. Um, has been in a in a pretty pretty favorable market since we've been right, launched started. in yeah. um, And so, when we think about how do we not have people overreact to certain kind of certain market conditions, we actually, when the markets are rough, we drive more content in the app experience itself to try to um, to try to just, just educate the customer. You know, listen, if, they, if someone wants to withdraw, they're going to withdraw. We,
1: that is our job to, to give them their money. Um, but our job is also to help it buy. So So, we had a rough patch about four months ago that, that the market's really corrected. I got all excited and started loading up and buying in again. Um, but most people would have been bailing out. So is that the same thing is that what you're doing at that point is just reeducating and
0: yeah, educate. I mean, I would say like we, we, we didn't, uh, uh, through that, that kind of rough spot last year, we didn't actually see meaningful withdrawal behavior changes, right. um, which I think is a function of the way that the product works itself. Right. Um, also, kind of, I, we and we've done a lot of testing of exposing people to content, not exposing to people to content, and there, we definitely see meaningful differences in behavior when we educate um, throughout the process. Um, and, and, and but 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 education for us is less around trying to trying to keep a balance alive or, or retain a customer in our way, you know, we think about it much more around the long term, which is how we think about the brand and the business itself. Um, we think a more financially literate, financially confident um, customer um, is, just, is just healthier. Um, and, and, and if we can help them with that, we think that, um, you know, that ends up being good for the business.
1: Do you guys take any, um, any look at companies and the, the way that they're growing their balance sheets or the way that they're investing Do you, or is it all just business to consumer? It is all,
0: uh, it is all, it is all consumer. I mean, we, we really don't spend much time looking at what else is going on. Um, I mean, obviously we look at the markets. We want to make sure that our portfolios are well designed and, and you know, there's a, you know, a meaningful amount of quantitative rigor. Um, through that process. I mean, we work with BlackRock actually as a strategic investor in Acorns. So we work a lot with BlackRock to, to make right. sure our portfolio is well designed. Um, and then we have an independent investment committee um, led by some, some, some pretty big names in the space to make sure that our um, portfolios are operating as intended. How much have you raised so far? Uh, cumulatively, I think probably 230, 240, something like that. Um, our last round this was
1: 105. Um, oh, shit. The, that's a lot.
0: Well, it, it you know, it takes a lot to, to build a, a great company and, and, you know, build over 5 million customers. So yeah. Um,
1: yeah. No kidding. So what's the end goal? Is it, is it to, um, to have an exit and sell to one of the big financial institutions? Is it to grow and, and continue to scale and take the company public or is it stay private? Any thoughts around um, that? I mean, our
0: position on this is, like, we're just going to build a great business. Mm-hmm. Any one of those outcomes could, could you know, is, is on the table. We wouldn't take anything off of the table. Yep. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that either. We're just trying to build just a great, build a great company, um, and whatever makes sense for the customer, for our team, for our investors, we'll make that decision when we need to make that decision. Um, but, but, but you know, as we think about who we're trying to serve, we're really focused on Americans that make under hundred thousand dollars a year. So the, the TAM on that, that cohort is 182 million. Mm-hmm. So we're wow. just scratching. We're just, even though we've, we've done some nice scaling, like we're just scratching the surface on the opportunity. And, and we think that there are lots more problems to solve that we think we're in a good position to solve. And so, so that's what we're, that's what we're relentlessly focusing
1: on. And are you just in the U S market currently? That's correct any, any eye to the other markets, or is it just, like you said, you're only 5 million people in a market of 182 million to stay focused on America for now?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how we think about it. I mean, we definitely
1: have broader ambitions, but, but those are, those are long-term ambitions, not short-term ambitions. It's a big enough pond to fish in. Um, what age, what, what's the, uh, the, the youngest that your clients can be?
0: At this point, um, because our we kind of our core account and kind of the entry point into the into the, the the financial wellness system that we've built is through an investment account. Right now, you must be 18. Um, you know, you'll see some stuff in the future that allows us to kind of go, um, go go younger, but but right now it's 18.
1: And is, so, if parents wanted to have an account for their kids, would they just open it up in the parents' name and then just have a sub account for their children that they might invest in?
0: Uh, right now that's not a capability that we have, but, but you'll see some stuff around kind of custodial accounts in the future.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so talk to us about, about, um, building a a fintech company or building a technology company in Irvine. I mean, you guys are down in Orange County. You said that you're not in the typical Bay area or the New York market, which I would probably think would be the, you know, the the financial hubs. How do you attract talent to that market? Um, is it easier? Is it harder? Is it different? And, um, and are you guys all just in the one location or do you have multiple offices as well? Yeah. So we actually have
0: four offices uh, predominantly our headquarters are here in Irvine.
1: Um,
0: but we have a, we have a, an office in Portland, Oregon, which is about 25 people. Um, that actually came as a result of an M and a transaction. Um, and we've, but, the, but that transaction came with eight employees. And so we've scaled that office primarily with through engineers and, and product people, but we scaled that office to about 25. Um, And and, and what we found with Portland specifically was you're able to capture a lot of San Francisco talent that's leaving San Francisco because of cost of living um, and lifestyle choices and and Portland's a great place to to live. Um, So we've seen um, some success there, particularly on the engineering side. Um, On the Orange County side, you know, listen, we've got a great set of engineers that are based here and, and, you know, Google's got big location here. Amazon's got big location here. So we're able to, as, as we've had more success, we've been able to attract you know, some talent from, from organizations like that. Um, we've also found there's a lot of people that, that are from Orange County that want to move back to Orange County that are engineers, and, and this has been a really nice kind of option for them, where in the past maybe less so. Um, and, then, and then we've got an office in New York City. Um, primarily, that's where our content and marketing teams sit, oh, um, I'm just, just because of the concentration of talent um, there. Um, and then we just recently opened up an office in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, okay. So, and, and, and what, what's interesting about that market, so our CTO actually is running that office and he, he resides there. Um, but there's a lot of bank talent, uh, financial services talent in that market. Um, and so a FinTech option can be quite attractive, particularly for people that are geographically inflexible. Um, and and so, so we think that opportunistically, that there's an opportunity to really build out engineering analytics risk management functions um, in that location. So, 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 so the, the kind of the the footprint that we have um, I think allows us to compete effectively without having to deal with, I think maybe some of the challenges of being San Francisco based or New York city based.
1: Totally. Yeah. Portland's a great market as well. And, but yeah, I mean, Orange County is pretty awesome weather and pretty great market to live in too. So, uh, it all kind of makes sense. So, talk a little bit about culture for us. What's your belief on on what builds a great company culture? And it sounds like you guys are are doing a good job at building one as well. I think in the mass media, we're doing we're we're kind of been given a disservice where they talk about the the free lunch and the bicycles on campus and the free massages, and that's really not what culture is all about. Walk us through what you think is making a great company culture for the team at Acorns.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, it starts with the mission. Um, you know, So we, we, t- we are very thoughtful about what it is that we're trying to do. Um, and that kind of that purpose is actually what aligns everybody internally. We recruit on it. We make all business decisions based on the mission. Um, and, and everyone has a, the opportunity to, if they see us potentially making a decision that maybe is in conflict with the mission, people call us out on it. Um, and, I, and I think there's a tremendous amount of authenticity around what that is, um, and I think that really helps build culture. It's not the only thing. We we also re- related to the mission. We were very clear on our values, and we reinforce our values. And they're just not like words painted on a wall. Um, but but it's tied to how we make business decisions. It's tied to how we make hiring decisions. It's tied to um, it's tied to virtually everything that we do. And so when we and and we tried. To, to work really hard about connecting the dots, um, so link it to actions, link it link, link those values to behaviors, um, and that to me has really really helped with building great culture. I mean, if you look at some of the, the external stats, whether it be you know Glassdoor or comparably or some of these these sites out there that like evaluate companies, our scores are are, are quite high, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's because. That's because of, of the consistency and the, the reinforcement of the mission and the values. And I think that's how you do it. Um, and, and we use a lot of tools to track employee satisfaction. Um, and, and really, the feedback component um, is, is quite important. Because this is not, you know, you need tops-down support to build great culture. But culture can't be built tops-down.
1: So. Yeah, not at all. When, I, I'm glad you actually mentioned the the part about the core values. I was talking to a CEO about this yesterday and um, he's really struggling with letting someone go who's just not a core values and culture fit and because he's so strong on the skill set side. And I just kept saying, you know, it's like a cultural cancer. You have to get that person out of the organization. You have to get rid of them. So, and you also mentioned that, you know, core values can't just be, you know, words or or sayings up on a wall, like, you know, even Enron had core values, right? But they just didn't live them. So how do you, how do you use, uh, can you give us this, you you kind of walked us through the philosophy around using core values, but can you give us a specific example of when the team or you used core values to make a tough decision or to reinforce a, a good decision?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can give you an example. I'm not going to get into specifics, because I just don't want to reveal anything confidential. But yeah, um, when I first started, um, and to, to be totally honest, like, like I didn't work in an environment where like this type of decision making was like values based, right. um, Very financially based. Um, so I actually didn't have a frame of reference, um, and so I was working on a project that had you know fairly meaningful business opportunity. Um, as one of the first things that I was came here and, and actually kind of inherited something midstream, and so as I as I started to to get immersed in the in the project, and uh, it just became clear to me that it wasn't going to work, um, and it was going to kind of fail on mission. Um, but there was a lot of of business impact uh, that was already being carried in our forecast around implementing this this initiative, and so I, I, I actually when I came to that conclusion, I called Noah and I said, Hey, um, like, Hey, I, I know, I know we're counting on this, but we should not do this. Mm. And I didn't actually know what the response was going to be. Um, and the response was very simple. You know what? That sounds great. We'll figure something else out. Let's go call the board. Um, and then that point in, in my mind, I was like, okay, now I understand. Yeah. And was- like, like that have been made a hundred times over. Um, and every time you do it, it just reinforces it and the team sees it. And it just, it's a self kind of
1: policing thing that I think is really, really healthy. It starts feeling good too, right? When you start actually making decisions based on the core values and based on the core purpose, all of a sudden it's like, damn, this actually is the right thing. Like it feels really good versus, and then I think that's where all of a sudden growth and profits follow. You know, they all, I think they get accelerated off those decisions versus just making decisions based on it in a vacuum. Um, final question I want to ask you Manning about, about growth. I mean, I think it's often hard for us to take advice from certainly from our parents or from others when we're, when we're young, but if you were to roll back to kind of when you were starting in your career and could tell yourself something big that you now know today, what would it be that, that has really served you well that you wish you'd known earlier? Um, uh,
0: don't be such a wimp, like take the leap. And I've taken risks in my career, and, and um, but but I would say that the, if I had one bigger, big kind of mega learning would be like, don't be such a wimp, like you'll figure it out. Um, but you're never going to know until you actually try.
1: Well, Manningfield, you are not a wimp to make the big move from Chase, one of the biggest financial services firms in the world to a, a a young, scrappy, kind of 60-person Acorns that's now growing at 300 and becoming a household name. Congratulations. I really appreciate you sharing with us today. No, thank you very much, and uh, enjoy your day. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting the account up and running. Thanks, buddy. Cool, thanks.
0: You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.